0: Our primary text, the word of God that we get to interact with and and enjoy and experience the power of this morning. We'll read from verse 1. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. from Nazareth of Galilee. Lord, we thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you that you so intentionally and carefully recorded what we need and what will exalt you and transform us as we enjoy, as we dig into as we mull over and meditate on we ask that that would take place this morning for your glory we thank you in Jesus name amen on December 4th 1977 in Bengui capital of the Central African Empire the world press witnessed the coronation of his imperial majesty Bokasa the first the price tag for this single event Twenty-five million dollars. At 10.10 a.m. that morning, the blare of trumpets and the roll of drums announced the approach of His Majesty. The procession began with eight of Bocasa's 29 official children parading down the royal carpet to their seats. They were followed by Jean Bédel Bocasa II, heir to the throne, dressed in a white admiral's uniform with gold braid. He was seated on a red pillow to the left of the throne. Catherine followed the favorite of Bocasa's nine wives. She was wearing a $73,000 gown made in Paris, strewn with pearls she had picked out herself. The emperor arrived in an imperial coach bedecked with gold eagles and drawn by six horses. When the Marine Band blared the sacred march of His Majesty, Emperor Bocasa I, His Highness strode forth, cloaked in a 32-pound robe, decorated with 785,000 strewn pearls and gold embroidery, white gloves adorned His hands, pearl slippers His feet. On his brow, he wore a gold crown of laurel wreaths like those worn by Roman consuls of old, a symbol of the favor of the gods. As the sacred march came to a conclusion, Bokassa seated himself on his $2.5 million eagle throne, took his gold laurel wreath off, and as Napoleon, 173 years before, had done, took his $2.5 million crown, which was topped with an 80-carat diamond, and placed it upon his head. At 10.43 a.m., December 4th, 1977, the 20th century saw a new emperor. Now, thankfully, mercifully, his reign was not impo- as imposing as his coronation. Just two years later, while Bocasso was out of the country, the French engineered a successful coup. It came too late for many of his victims, among them 200 children who had been executed because they complained about the expense of their school uniforms. This story, which took place in about 30 minutes, is usually what we think of when we think of a triumphant entry and procession and coronation and gathering. We can do the history lesson of Julius Caesar coming in to Rome after all of his conquests, Napoleon doing the same, crowning himself emperor. But when we get to this story... In Matthew 21, it's recorded in all the Gospels. We find a very different approach. We don't find pearls anywhere around. But we find a Savior who we, we learn a lot about in these verses. And as is the, te- the temptation, really, uh, and, and it becomes easier to do this when we get used to it. The temptation is when we read Scripture, we're just reading And it's very helpful, and that's what preaching does. It pauses. It says, let's just take this. Let's look at this. That's what study does. Study is is not just reading through. Study is pausing. Let me consider all the angles. Let me look at that from a different perspective. Let me read other people who have something to say about this. That's what we're doing this morning. And as we do this with this section, we find a Savior that we can learn a lot about. We also find a crowd that we can identify with in some unique ways. The first thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. This most probably happens um, within the last week of his time on earth in Jerusalem before he's crucified the following weekend. There's some differences in how to look at as the different uh, authors of the gospel accounts record them, but most probably this happened close to the time he was in Jerusalem until he was taken and executed. And when he comes to this, he's actually, uh, Jerusalem is lower, because you read in Scripture where it says we'll go up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is uh, very high up in the mountains, uh, altitude-wise, but the Mount of Olives is actually 300 feet higher than Jerusalem is. And Bethany's on one side, Bethphage probably on the other side. So he's approaching, coming, and he gets to that point, and he gives some instructions to the disciples. Now this is the first time that he's ever going to draw attention to himself. All the other times after he's healing people, what's he telling them? Don't tell anybody, and he's escaping. So nobody sees him. So nobody captures him. Uh, meaning that everybody was trying to get there because they wanted him to, to be the, the conquering hero that would overthrow the Roman rule they were in, that was imposed upon them. They were looking for that freedom. He's usually escaping and trying to find slip away through the crowd. This time, he's very intentional, and he's led of the Spirit, just like we saw in the beginning of his ministry, when the Spirit leads him into the wilderness... We have the same thing happening toward the end of his ministry, where he's being led of the Spirit. And here he's going to to tell these two disciples, I want you to go, I want you to find, you're you're going to find. Tells them, go over, go to Bethphage. He's probably at this time still in Bethany, so they have to cross the Mount of Olives to Bethphage. Get the colt and the donkey, bring them back over to Bethany. We find in the the account of John that he's there uh, in Bethany. He's just raised Lazarus. He's just probably before that approaching to Bethany. He's healed some blind people that were on the road. He's been doing some things. He's there. Go find the donkey and the colt. Bring them back to me. Oh, you will find them. There's a subtle, uh, so this is what we have to pay attention to, with the sovereignty of God that we so cherish and enjoy. The sovereignty of God being that he is in control of every aspect of the occurrences that we experience. And Jesus now is being led of the Spirit. We're not told how he knows the donkey and the colt will be there. Did he see it once before as he was going back, possibly, back and forth from Jerusalem to Bethany? He could have. Could he have just been led of the Spirit? He just knew. The Spirit told him. Now, I think we, we fall on two sides in our own experience of experiencing the sovereignty of God like that and being led of the Spirit. We are to be a people led of the Holy Spirit. We should be looking for his activity in our lives and attributing it to him. Now the danger is, and I think this is what we try to avoid, we don't want to attribute everything to the Holy Spirit. Oh, I took a step. That was the Holy Spirit leading me. That's uh, a little super spiritual. But how about, you know what? I woke up in the middle of the night, couldn't sleep. You came to mind. I was praying for you. Oh, that's spirit ministry. And and when we say that and communicate that to somebody, we can't just think, I don't know why you came to mind. It's no, the Holy Spirit brought you to my mind. There's the ministry of the spirit that happens in the body of Christ in that way. We need to be leaning toward that. The example that Jesus gives us, he's being led of the spirit. He knows there's a donkey and a colt over there. So he sends his disciples to go get them. We're going to see power of the Spirit happen as he's doing this. So as, as Matthew's writing this account, and he gives the account, go over there. You're going to see these the colt and the donkey. If somebody says, what are you doing? Hey, what are you doing taking my animals? Which most probably somebody would do if they're around. The Lord needs them. And we find in the different accounts, okay. Go ahead, take them. Now, Matthew wants us to know this was on purpose because there was a prophet named Zechariah, and he recorded what we have quoted here. Say, it's actually, the Savior to the daughter of Zion is actually apart from Isaiah as well. But behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, And on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Look at the beginning of verse four. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. We find that phrase oftentimes in Matthew. Because Matthew wants his readers to understand something. Jesus is the king we've been looking for. But he came in a way that we weren't looking for. But we need to recognize now why he came and what he was doing The word was being fulfilled in this exchange. The the, the word of God in the prophet, what, what Zechariah prophesied is being fulfilled. And Jesus, in his obedience to the Father, is participating in fulfilling over and over and over again the very word of God. He's fulfilling the fullness of his own character. See, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, we find in Colossians. Everything that Jesus is is about. Uh, I would say it this way as well. God is strategic in putting Jesus before us. Whether it's through creation, whether it's through His redemptive process of Him saving us from our own sins, He's putting and our growth in Christ. He's putting Jesus before us, and He's saying, "Here's the Savior." The word is gaining full. It's gaining breath. It's gaining height. It's it's gaining depth. And when we look at Jesus over and over again, that that should be happening to us. He should be coming wider and deeper and higher, and we should be more and more amazed. The word is to be fulfilled as we learn about him. In a way, you can think about it this way. Uh, A 2D picture is becoming 3D. The more we look at Christ, the more we gaze upon his person and his work, and now This king is coming. He's been led of the Spirit. The word is being fulfilled. And he comes on a donkey. When you think of a procession of a king, what's he riding? Horse, a chariot pulled by a horse. He chose a donkey. Do we find that odd? I do. I've always felt, I want Jesus, me, that's kind of, I I think I can sympathize with the Jews. I want him to be big and mighty and strong. And here he's riding on a donkey. just doesn't, you're you're Jesus. You're the son of God. You're the king of kings and Lord of lords. And you're on a donkey on purpose. So he's declaring something about himself as he's riding on that animal. Now we have in there, it's a donkey and a colt. The colt, we find in Luke, had never been ridden before. And most probably, Jesus wanted the donkey with the colt to kind of calm the colt down. Because if you're ever on a colt that hadn't been ridden before, it probably is a bumpy ride. So the donkey with that. Now, the cloaks that are put on them, if you just check this, we just need to be careful. Uh, verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put, put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. That Them is the cloaks. Jesus didn't sit on both of the donkey and the colt. He's not straddling that. He's not standing up with the reins, waving to people. That's not happening. The them is the cloaks. He's sitting on the cloaks. We just need to make sure that we're understanding what Matthew is saying there. Around this time, donkeys, this time that Jesus is riding on it, donkeys were, were not considered to be dignified enough for a king. And yet the crowd is enthusiastic. I wonder if they just, oh, okay donkey all right you're the king you can choose whatever you want okay well we're still going to welcome you in jesus is intentional with this because in the time of david when he was king donkeys were very royal so they were found all over the place and after Solomon, and donkeys kind of lost their flair i guess and the horse's prominence became the thing to do if a key, if you were a king you rode on a horse you didn't ride on a donkey but jesus what is he doing He's, he's choosing the donkey to, to let everybody know. The covenant that God made with David, it's being fulfilled right now. The picture that God gave to David, here's what it looks like. And the descent, he's actually coming, I, like, I just like this picture. He's coming down from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is descending, condescending, coming down. To bear our sin. Cool picture. And it's all over the place. It's just, it's there. It's chock full. Um, He's identifying himself with the throne of David. He is the rightful king. But there's a huge, there's another aspect of his choice of a donkey. And it reveals that Jesus is a humble king. He's a humble king. This is the first time in his ministry he's drawn attention to himself. He's a new kind of king. He's a king of peace, not a king of war. Philippians 2.6, you remember that verse that being God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but lowered himself and became obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have a humble king in Christ, now please understand: humble and meek doesn't mean weak and wimpy. It doesn't mean that. We we have, uh, I think, because of just the the paintings of Jesus through the centuries. I, I, the dominant picture I have of Jesus, I don't know if you're like me, is his eyes are they kind of like this. And they're more of a puppy dog eye. And so it's kind of this, won't you please live for me? Won't you please? I died for you. That's not what scripture gives. I think there was an intensity in Jesus' eyes that certainly people who wanted healing saw and they chased after him. The blind men didn't even need to see his eyes to understand, no, I'm hearing something real different. So we've got to understand when Jesus, when he goes to his final days, and, and when Isaiah says like a sheep before its shears is silent, like a, a lamb getting ready to sacrifice, doesn't, he didn't let out a word. That doesn't mean he never lets out a word. He's before Pilate, and he didn't say anything, and that was on purpose, because Pilate didn't understand what was going on in that moment. Jesus knew what was going on in that moment. But he says some very powerful things in the gospel record. He's going to say some very powerful things at the end of the world. Humble and meek does not equal weak and wimpy. Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 21 gives us, he gives us the picture. uh, John records the picture of Jesus' eyes. You know what he says? They're flames of fire. Those are Jesus' eyes. That should put a different twist on us, you know, with, with people wearing those wristbands years ago about what would Jesus do, and, and he's alongside of you. It's just, it's just weird, and I've seen these weird uh, skits through the years in youth ministry. They have these weird skits, and I don't know, they get a point across, but I don't particularly care about them. It's just somebody's going about their day, and Jesus is just real silent sitting there like this. So they're over here talking to friends, yeah, and they bump into Jesus. Oh, no, 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 leave me alone, Jesus. And they go over here, but Jesus is just like this, with his puppy dog eyes, following around. And he's supposed to ask, you, said, what would Jesus do? He's right next to you. He's always with you. What would Jesus do? If he's got puppy dog eyes, it it doesn't curb sin. But let's think about him with eyes of fire. And that should influence the next time we have our mouse and we click on something. It should influence... The domain names that we're typing in. When we think of Jesus next to us, speaking to us with eyes of fire. That's who Jesus is. But yet he's using his power to not display his power in the person of himself as he's going to Jerusalem for the final week. Now we have a also, something that's kind of flip-flopped in this, I don't most of the, most Bibles have the little caption before Matthew twenty one, the triumphal entry. Understanding that triumphal entries didn't happen before a triumph, and that's exactly what's going on right now. The parade is coming before the victory. And it's a little different. Julius Caesar, when he came back from conquering, when he had his procession into Rome, he had uh, he was on his chariot pulled by horses pulling through, and he had myriads, thousands behind him who were his captives of war, in chains, walking along. And you know what they were doing? They probably had their palm leaves out and shaking them. They were putting their cloaks on the ground. Everybody, the, the splendor was there. But behind the victor, whoever the victor was, whoever the triumphant one was, coming behind him was why he was triumphant. Here's all of his captives. Jesus is flipping this around. He's on a beast of burden. See, Jesus is is coming not to show what he has done, but he's coming to declare what he's getting ready to do. He will be our burden bearer. He will be the bearer of our sin. He will bear the weight of the furious, righteous wrath of God stored up for our sins. He would bear our punishment. Think about this. Instead of coming with a crown of jewels, he'll receive a crown of thorns. Instead of robes of brightness to symbolize honor, he'd be stripped of his clothes to symbolize our shame. Instead of riding in on a chariot drawn by horses with his captives and slaves following in their chains, he would carry his own cross to set the captives free. Instead of a sword, he would bring peace. He's the king of peace, and he brings that peace with God. This is a humble, powerful, mighty king indeed. Jesus is showing the wisdom of God in this process. He's showing the power of God in this process. And he's showing there is victory and it's coming at the end of the week. But did the crowd know it is the question. See, the crowd is cheering. And they are most probably cheering for what what they saw, not necessarily for who they saw. Is that proper English? I don't know if it's who or whom, but we'll just go with who. It works better. They cheered for what they saw. Why? Because he, you have two crowds that are coming with Jesus. You've got one behind him. The crowd behind him has just seen him heal blind men, has just seen him raise somebody from the dead. That's pretty powerful. That's going to bring some acclaim. It's going to bring some popularity. He's popular now. They're following behind him, cheering him. Yes, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in, this, in the name of David, here is the one that they've been waiting for. And as this procession is coming down from the Mount of Olives, there's another group coming out from Jerusalem up to meet him because they hear a commotion going on. There's a lot of people around. And the ones that are coming out, they see it's Jesus as well. They've heard about him. They've seen him in their city. Now, they join in the chorus as well. They're putting their cloaks in the ground. They're going to chop down the branches and bring them and they're waving them. The branches that they use most probably are not these little Sago palm things. They're the ginormous, big old palm leaves that they're going next to a tree. Somebody's got a machete. They're hacking it down real quick. Jesus is coming. Okay, all right. And they're putting it before him, and they're laying their cloaks. What are they doing? The cloaks, they want it it to be a carpet, a carpet for the king who's coming and as he's entering Jerusalem he most probably is coming down and he's passing through the Kidron Valley and going back up a little ways to Jerusalem the Kidron Valley this is pretty interesting they had the temple was a bloody place it had to be it was not all pristine like we see the pictures in the study bibles and oh look at that it's so pretty the altar of sacrifice was it was red and it was deep crimson red because it was blood everywhere you had you had sheep doing what they do. What is that called? Sheep bleed. Interesting. Getting ready to bleed in another way. There's a, it's a it's a weird, chaotic, messy place. Stinks. And out from the altar of sacrifice, most probably they they put a drain for the blood that would go. And the blood went out, and the drain went out in. The blood went out in the drain to, you know where? The Kidron Valley. So as Jesus is crossing that on that colt, he's passing through the symbol of, that's the blood shed for sin. He passed it several times through his ministry, going up to Jerusalem, back over to the Mount of Olives to go over to Bethany. Some huge things taking place. But here, uh, during this time, the palm branches symbolize political victory. Uh, I think... um, Ah, I'm forgetting this now. I think Augustus Caesar, the one that came after Julius Caesar, had the palm branch on. He had it imprinted on the coins for their currency. So there was the palm branches during that time meant political victory. There's going to be victory. It's going to be coming politically. And and, and there's also the coats are representing that carpet for the king. And they're shouting Hosanna, which literally means "Oh save." Oh, save. You're the one to save. Save us. Oh, save. And so they're they're chanting these things, but I think in their minds they have something very different going on. They're most probably, but with the choice of the branches and the coats. Now, this is the thing. It should have been branches and coats, and it should have been that royal entry. It should have happened that way. And Jesus, probably understanding that the crowd's not getting it, being the humble king that he is, is okay with it. He's patient. Because He says, one day you'll know. That's what John records. Now, looking back, we understand what all that meant. But when it was happening, we had no idea what was going on. Maybe because the disciples were looking for the same thing as the crowd. They're coming in. The crowd is looking for a political victor. They're looking for somebody that's going to finally free them from the discomfort of Roman occupation. They want to be free. They want to be free to live their lives as they want, not pay tribute to Caesar. They want to be free from all of that stuff, so they're looking for this man now. He just raised somebody from the dead. Of course he's going to be the one to save us. Their choices reveal their heart. They may have been confused by the donkey, why it wasn't a horse, but they're looking for Jesus to rescue them from a present discomfort, not a future reality. I think they looked for a cultural Jesus. And we too have, we have a temptation to make Jesus cultural for ourselves. Not necessarily maybe to fit in, we look for him to fit in culture, but we also look for him to be something to us. We culturalize him for our own hearts, for our own needs. And our, our culture already has many opinions about Jesus. You can, uh, whether you're, you're scrolling through TV channels, whether you're listening music through, Music, movies, every, the world has an opinion. And it, it probably got popularized uh, back by the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> Jesus is just all right with me. From that became there, everybody, then it became you have your, your bands that focus on Jesus, and then you have your bands that somewhat, your country singers. They're, you know, they're talking about Jesus all the time, but you, but sometimes you're singing about being sad, and then you've got, you've got everybody else that just kind of mentions Jesus every now and then. The list is pretty interesting, from the Doobie Brothers to Jethro Toll, Elton John, Queen, Cat Stevens. Cat Stevens, you shouldn't listen to anything he says about Jesus. Op, a little off there, Eric Clapton, Genesis, Phil Collins. Uh, Depeche Mode, George Michael, Bruce Springsteen, Bon Jovi, Kanye. They, Elvis had his own gospel, ultimate gospel. So did Johnny Cash. The people sing a lot about Jesus. Carrie Underwood, Jesus Take the Wheel from a few years ago. I say a few, it was like six now, man. Movies and TV usually depict Jesus as the long-haired, bearded, hippie wimp. He's just, he's in his robe, and he's the guy that can be ignored. He's the guy that can be neglected. And he kind of shows up for a little morality check, but they ignore it and move on. A few years ago, actually a company came out with a Jesus action figure. I wonder if, does it heal people? Does it put out a hand like this and heal the blind? That would be an action figure. It would be in action. You see, Jesus, more and more, I've seen this actually through the years, that Jesus is on T-shirts. Jesus is my homeboy from several years, Kanye West. I want to popularize that. But you've got got pictures of Jesus' face on shirts. And so it's becoming, the culture has opinions about Jesus. Now, I, I would boil it down to kind of four things that I think, it's not the only things, but that Jesus is in our culture or means to our culture. The first thing is this. In our culture, Jesus can only have one trait, and that's love. And you'll, you'll hear this maybe from coworkers or family members about if Jesus is so loving, how can he send anybody to hell? Now, if somebody would ask me that question, if they, if they said it just like that, if Jesus is love... How can he send anybody to hell? And I'd say he wouldn't if he was only love. But what if he's more than that? What if there's a a character about him that's full, that we have yet to discover, even as we know him more and more and more and more and more, just like you discover your spouse more and more and more after years of marriage? See, if Jesus was only love, he wouldn't send anybody to hell. But he's more than that. And that's where our culture wants to just kind of shrink him in and make him one thing. And we have to very delicately, patiently, and humbly say, no, he's more than that. Within our culture, Jesus is a symbol of overcoming evil, which is, is an evil to mankind, man-to-man evil. Jesus, you need to look to Jesus in order to overcome uh, your anger toward people, the oppression, the, the overarching oppression to mankind. It's not a personal evil that says, no, no. I'm not right with God. Jesus needs to help me, not just help mankind. Jesus in our culture is about being realized today and only today. And it lacks the emphasis of a future reality. No, Jesus, he's eternal. He's infinite. He's got a future kingdom that we need to be paying attention to. And I think the fourth thing would be that that within our culture, salvation Salvation helps you experience the life God has for you. Now, this is, uh, sadly, I think, very, very prevalent within the church culture. Salvation is simply God's means to give you the life that you deserve and that you, that you need to realize and that you need to be about. But it begs the question, does God exist for me or do I, do I exist for God? God. If God exists for me, then yes, he's going to help me realize the goals that I have, the dreams that he's set in my heart, and and, and so I'm going to be able to achieve those things because God's going to help me do that. Or do I exist for God? God, where do you you want to be proclaimed in my life? Where am I to be transformed so when people see me, they see you, where I get out of the way? See the difference? The difference can be so very subtle because we can pull the scriptures that say, God will give you the desires of your heart okay, well, okay, make sure I have the right heart. I want, My heart, I want it to be for God because God's gonna give me, so look, the rest of the scripture, he's gonna give me the desires that, that line up with his desires for my life. We need to be very careful. We need to be careful ourselves here in this church this morning of formulating a cultural Jesus to suit our desires. I would say it like this. A cultural Jesus uh, formulating that is neglecting or marginalizing the truth of Jesus to satisfy our feelings and excuse responsibility. We push him out. We push the things that Jesus says. We push his righteousness out to the exterior because we don't want him telling us that what we're doing is wrong. That happens in our culture, but it can very easily happen to us because it's just uncomfortable to to be told you're doing something wrong. Nobody likes that. But as we push Jesus to the margins, as we push him out, then he's not as loud. Or we just simply neglect him. To satisfy our own desires, whether that's, that's coming, uh, just trying to make my world feel better. Jesus, come just make me feel better. Make me feel better in my marriage. Make me feel better by getting married, make me make my parenting feel better by making my kids perfect and make my work situation feel better, make my lifestyle better, make my finances better, make my health better. Does Jesus want to affect every single one of those categories? Yes. Does he have blessing for you in every single one of those categories? Yes. But we have to make sure that we're not taking Jesus to make him, we change Jesus and he's he, he, He's not the Jesus of the Bible anymore. We we neglect and deny the truths of who He is and what He says. Just just do this for me. And when, you know what happens when it doesn't? When we're using Jesus that way and we don't have the effect and the fruit that we're looking for in these categories, we give up. Why am I going to read my Bible? Jesus is not give me what I want. Now we might not come out and say it like that, but we sure think it. How long, O oh Lord? And we use Scripture against God in that way. And th- those, it's appropriate. With the right heart and motivation to ask the Lord, How long? But not, How long? Enough already. God, you promised me a better life. You promised me this, and you've promised this, and I just want a lot of money to make my lifestyle feel better. Because I'm jealous of other people and seeing all the toys that they have or work situations. Where we 're not creative in our work, we're not looking to produce in our workplace, we're just looking for God just to, to give us the easy road, just minimal effort. I don't have to do anything. Jesus help me, give you my heart right now. We've got to be careful. We have to be careful. We can also we can also use Jesus to be an antidote for our sinful behavior, meaning that we use. We cheapen who he is. We reduce who he is to simply forgiving us of our sins. So when we go and sin, we just remember, okay, Jesus loves me, he died for my sin, okay. It leaves our conscience, it leaves our guilt for a little while, and the, but you know what happens? We go right back to the sin that we we're craving and, and the pleasure that we we're finding in it. He's, he is the conqueror of our sin. He's not just the pill that we take after we've sinned. When we do this, when we marginalize Jesus, when we're looking for a cultural Jesus, we're seeking in that moment to be the authority of our lives. I'm calling the shots. I'm doing what I want to do. Jesus, you're going to help me get there. Yikes. Lord, help us. Help us not, we don't want to demand of Christ because he has demanded of us. He demands our lives and he says, give everything to me and you'll be blessed. Deny yourself, then you'll know true joy and peace. We need in this moment to surrender control of our wills, of our definition of truth to His definition of truth, His power, His victory, and His love in our lives. As we get down in these verses, we get to verse 10. And when when he entered, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That little tagline, that's probably the ones coming after Jesus who maybe have been with him all the way since Nazareth and they've, they've seen the miracles that he's done all around Galilee and so they're traveling down with him and the ones that are coming out for, who is this? They kind of are throwing in a, that's Jesus. He's from my, my town, Jesus of Nazareth. That's where I'm from. You know, we kind of do that with athletes that are from here. You just kind of have this special connection pride thing. Of, yeah, he's from New Orleans. Yeah, that's cool. That's kind of what's going on here. And they're, they're, they're pumping him up in that way. And he's even from Nazareth. Of course, everybody else is looking at Nazareth. You shouldn't be so proud of that. you got to be careful. Temper that enthusiasm a bit. But here, this, what's happening? Look, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up when jesus enters there's a stirring but what we have to realize is that there's an aspect every single one of our hearts john bunyan wrote an allegorical story called uh, the holy war and in that there's a city called man's soul and that city has walls around it and has a gate and Mansoul is, the war is over Mansoul. You've got the enemy that wants to overtake Mansoul. He actually gets in, gets a footing in, and just begins to destroy all of Mansoul. But there's another that comes that restores that city. Now the key, I think, for us to, to realize, that there's, there's a gate to our hearts. There's a, a city gate. There was in Jerusalem. There were several different gates. And there's a gate to our heart that, that we open up to things. It's usually when we, we open it up to things that are, we know are going to be pleasurable. We have, this, we have this self-protection thing over our own hearts and souls that we don't want to let anything that's going to hurt us, of course. So we, we, we move back from people. We move away from them when we think we're going to be hurt by them. We do this little self-protection thing. Could be members of our own family. But there's an aspect. We have gates. Now, when you think of that gate, even a medieval gate, behind the gate, how do you lock it? You put that big old beam right in front. you got the iron bars that are coming out to hold the beam. You put the beam there. Jesus, he's coming. Our king is coming. He's coming to you. What are the gates of your heart? What's what's that first gate doing? Is it barricaded? And I would ask the question, is it barricaded with self-sufficiency? Is it barricaded with pride? You're not getting in here. I can do this myself. Is it barricaded with pity? I'll just never be good enough. Is it barricaded with with sinful activities, it barricaded with a pride that says, I'm just going to do things my ways. What's holding that? Now, there's an aspect that, uh, in times, our hearts need to be guarded, but it's not with a wooden beam of sinful activity, it's with a steel beam of the truth of God. When there's an attack of the enemy, we know No, we need to form up, we need to guard ourselves, we need to, we need to lock the gate. But Jesus coming down, he wants, this is where we're going to turn this personal to us. He wants to come to you. And there's two ways to ask the question, who is this? Out of curiosity, who is this? Because I just want to know. But there's another way that we can ask that question, huh? Who is this? It's a person I've known for a long time. And they're saying some wild things. You, that we encounter that when you, when you, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, when people grow spiritually really fast <laughs> and we kind of make a joke, who are you? And what have you done with a person that I've known for so many years? We should be encouraging that, but sometimes it's a wonder. And that's a second way. We, we ask, who is this out of curiosity? We ask, who is this out of wonder and amazement? And as we look upon Christ more and more and more, we should be asking... Who is this? Who is this Jesus that came to bear my sin? A penalty that I couldn't pay back to the Father. He paid in my place for me. Taking hell for me so I wouldn't have to. Who is this? When, When Jesus calms the storm, his disciples didn't immediately say, thanks man, that was really rocky and I was a little scared. They said, who is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him. That's the king that we have. And your king is coming to you. Emphasis on your. It's kind of walk through this little weird thing where you emphasize different words. Your king is coming to you. Do you know this is not somebody else's king? The infinite, the infinite God has become personal in Jesus. Jesus. Personal for every single one of us. Personal because of his sacrifice and forgiveness and his love, and he draws us to the Father. There's no way to the Father except through him. He's our king. Your king is coming to you. This is the king of peace. Because what we need in our lives is not simply freedom from discomfort. We need freedom from God. (laughs) Jesus gives us that. He gives us peace with God so now we can enjoy his splendor and his majesty over and over. He is our king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And your king is coming to you. He's coming again. He's coming again. Let me read you this. Revelation 21. Where his eyes are described as fire. This is, this is a cool picture. That's not it. There we go. It's 19. Sorry about that. It's on the same page as 21. It's just right over here. (laughs) Verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with, an, with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the king that we have. And yet, he humbles himself by coming on a, a beast of burden to tell us what he would do for us. Oh, he's coming back with the sword. He is coming back, and it's going to be a glorious occasion if we live to see it. If we don't, I'm sure we'll be able to see it on DVR or something like that in heaven. (laughs) Your king is coming to you, to your heart. Jesus enters our hearts. Are Are we lifting out Those gates, are we surrendering with that open gate? Are we surrendering the the authority of our own little personal man soul? Opening wide the gates of your heart to Jesus. I'll just close with reading Psalm 24. Verse 7 Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. That the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Father, we... We thank you for your love that sent your Son to this earth to die our death, to bear our sin, that we could be free. Jesus, come in, come in yet again, come in, that we might be amazed, that might, we might be in awe that we might stand in wonder yet again. Jesus, come in. Let's stand together.